Welcome to the Litigation Psychology Podcast, presented by Courtroom Sciences, a podcast for the defense bar about the intersection of science and litigation. All right, good afternoon and welcome. This is episode two of our podcast addressing nuclear verdicts. This is uh, arguably, next to reptile theory, uh, the hottest uh, issue in uh, the defense bar right now. Everybody's in panic mode, and so we're doing these podcasts to uh, give you the jury consultant uh, perspective on this. Uh, I am thrilled today to be bringing in Dr. George Speckart. Uh, he's my colleague uh, for about 15 years. He's been in the industry for over 30 and really has a great uh, scientific explanation uh, of these verdicts. And I think that our audience is really going to um, be thrilled uh, to hear what he has to say. I think a lot of it may surprise you, too. I think a lot of it may surprise you, and um, we're going to bring him in right now. Uh, George, are you there? Hello, everybody. All right. Well, this is Dr. Speckart, um, and I'm just going to call you George because you're my buddy. Um, George, to get this started, I think it's important to uh, tell your audience uh, here uh, really who you are how you got started and the number of de- the number of decades you've been doing this relative to me i'm i'm in my 15th year but uh kind of how did all this uh get started for you um i was working as a graduate student uh getting my phd in psychological measurement at ucla and actually saw a posting sort of a help wanted posting by uh litigation sciences inc which was one of the pioneering firms started around 1979 in southern california and at that time, they were looking for PhDs and actually recruiting people. There was They needed to get people to help them. Now we've got a surfeit of jury consultants. But back in those days, they were recruiting. And so I joined in about 1983 and have been a jury consultant since that time. And my emphasis has always been on uh, scientific rigor and psychological measurement as a means to start with a firm foundation and all the inferences that we make. And we're going to talk about a lot today, the whole concept of scientific rigor, which quite frankly, I don't think a lot of attorneys or clients really understand uh, the differences between consulting firms and when you're actually getting a consulting firm that that actually uses the scientific method, (laughs) I think is very, very important. But I want to talk about uh, what's going on in in litigation today, particularly in the defense bar. Uh, When I posted on LinkedIn earlier in the week that we were doing these podcast um the my linkedin mailbox filled up very quickly wanting to know when we were posting it uh when uh uh, they could uh, tune in and i wanted to get these first couple under our belts but george what i'd like you to do is to really start um and and you sent me a document with an outline and, and, and i think the title is amazing the title is the nuclear verdict uh, old wine and new bottles. <laughs> you want to explain the concept that maybe sure. these nuclear verdicts, this is not something new, is it? Not at all. Um, in 1984, uh, the Agent Orange settlement, I worked on that case in New York City, $180 million. That was the largest settlement in history at the time. That's 1984, $180 million. 1985, there was a $10 billion award in Pennzoil versus Texaco in state court in Texas. In 1994, we had the $5 billion Exxon Valdez case. Uh, In 1999, the Los Angeles jury awarded $4.9 billion against General Motors. 
And also that year, there was a $296 million verdict in North Texas uh, for a little girl who got killed in a pipeline explosion. Wow. Uh, in 2000, $144 billion verdict in Florida against big tobacco. And so by 2005, the American Tort Reform Association began writing about judicial hellholes to account for the uh, apparently uh, increasing number of un what, what they deemed to be unreasonable verdicts. Um, but verdicts with monetary awards that far exceed expectations and that are considered to be out inflated, outlandish, or even destructive have been a problem for at least a generation. That's, and, a, that's a really good point. And I think possibly uh, from a perspective spanning a few decades, it appears that a new generation of lawyers are now looking at a phenomenon that has been going on for this entire time span. It gave it the name nuclear verdict. But back in the uh, 90s and early 2000s, they called it the runaway verdict or the runaway jury. Of course, everyone knows there was a movie and a novel by Grisham with that name as well. Yeah, and Gene, I believe that was uh, Gene Hackman and John Cusack. Yeah. Wasn't weird in the yeah. movie yet. Yeah, and we could talk about that one for an hour, but <laughs> keep moving along. Yeah, um, but that's a very good point. Uh, these verdicts have been around for a while, and I think um, how do you feel the the role of social media and the internet? Because remember, because obviously back uh, in this time there was no social media, and I guess the only way you got your news was really from. Uh, cable TV or the newspaper uh, do you think social media and the internet today uh, uh, is really getting the information I, I mean by the way yesterday Johnson & Johnson got hit for like a couple hundred million dollars I got a I got a, a social a, a something on LinkedIn I saw what do you think about the role of social media today and how it impacts uh, the news of these verdicts well, a lot of people have been offering opinions, and you know, opinions have to be tested and subjected to scientific rigor. But uh, my own opinion, which has also not been tested yet, and which we'd like to test, is that uh, there's increasing distrust, resentment, particularly with regard to CEO pay disparity among executives and and common workers, and, and that comes golden parachutes you know all of that that comes up in social media it also comes up in politicians messages uh for reform and and it comes up in the internet generally which i think the main function of which is to just disseminate information more more efficiently so that pe people learn these facts and react to them on a quicker scale than they used to yeah, and so uh, we had talked offline a couple days ago. So all these um, articles, not publications per se, but articles are coming out now on nuclear verdicts and, and why they're happening. And um, it amazes me when they say, uh, here's the opinion from the legal expert who's some professor at a university who, who doesn't talk to jurors, doesn't do mock trials, uh, is more of an academic. And... These academics have come out and they, they just blame the jurors. Well, these are different jurors and these jurors don't value money and these jurors hate corporation. It's, it's all the jurors' fault. I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> I'm really not. I think that there is um, – I do think that there are these uh, horrible venues 
where um, if you if you attempt to try a case at one of these venues, you're going to be in trouble. I don't care whether it was 1985 or 2020. But I have a problem with the pundits coming out and just saying this is a jury problem where I think maybe the insurance defense industry, I think there's some changes. I think, number one, like there's a new uh, generation of defense attorneys, okay? And the ones that are now retiring, who, who I, I, I know a lot of them, they retired with usually over 100 to 150 jury trials under their belts. Now these 40-something attorneys or maybe early 50-something attorneys, they don't have nearly the amount of experience or trial experience uh, that, that their, their predecessors did. And then you combine that with the insurance defense industry's uh, um, lack of cooperation with helping these attorneys accurately uh, assess these cases. Are, are, George, do you blame the jurors or do you think it's more of a system-wide issue? I think it's a multiplicity of factors um, and jurors are certainly part of it, but uh, there are still to this day a shocking number of poorly trained witnesses who just give away the farm uh, either a deposition or a trial. Um, you know, they, they look like they're covering up and you know, jurors don't say, oh, that witness is nervous. If I were up there in the witness stand, I'd be nervous, too. What they say is that witness looks nervous. He must be hiding the ball. Um, and then, of course, there's this issue of the judicial hellholes that uh, the American Tort Reform Association has written about for so many years. And that's not just jurors. It's also the bench and the way that judges make decisions uh, that they point to. And then there's this issue of streetwise litigation, we call it. Uh, and we wrote about that in 2003. Um, and I can offer you a, a, a short summary of that article, which is basically that the plaintiff attorneys have gotten really good yeah. at manipulating the courtroom and, and crossing the line at selected spots before anybody knows what's happened. They've seized the hearts and minds of the jury, and the defense, more conservative defense lawyers are just standing there uh, not knowing what happened. They're and just I, out-hustled and out-maneuvered. Well, and I'm glad you said that word, out-maneuvered, because what I see happening in this industry, because listen, we, I mean, you and I in particular, we work on a lot of these big cases, and we do not get hit with nuclear verdicts. <laughs> and I think there's a formula to failure and a formula to success. And where I see the success is when you have, whether it be an insurance company or a corporation, being very aggressive early on in a case, doing mock trials, doing focus groups, preparing witnesses. And, and so that they're the power of science. Yeah. And, 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 and but that, that takes time and money and it takes a certain philosophy, which a lot of insurance companies don't want to spend that money on. And so I think the formula to success is to outmaneuver your opposition to out-hustle them, I call throwing the first punch. That's what I call it. You say you win by out-preparing the other side. Precisely. And I think that's largely disappeared. And let's talk about reptile a little bit. And back to your, you, know, you said the plan fraternities are getting really good. I don't think it's the reptile strat. Well, the reptile works. I mean, we know that works. Uh, they got, you know, $8 billion of verdicts and settlements already. But the issue is, is you have a plaintiff's bar that is very, very aggressive in training their attorneys to be better attorneys. 
Defense attorneys, they don't get any subsequent training, right? They kind of learn on the job. And so when you have uh, uh, so few cases going to trial now, uh, yet you have this uh, um, kind of, I want to say lack of preparation, but I guess a lack of training on the defense side of subsequent training. And then you have, you go on the reptile website and there's all these seminars you can go to, to, to learn how to give a better opening statement, to learn how to cross examine a witness more effectively. I think what you're seeing on the playing field, it's like a pro team against a college team. I think it's a difference in training. What are your thoughts about that? Well, there's actually more to it than that because you have to consider also a number of factors that are leading to the defense attorneys being outmaneuvered and out-hustled. And the primary one is that the plaintiff attorneys have their own money in the game, so they're going to be they're going to be taking this dead seriously and and preparing day and night every way they know how. Also, plaintiff attorneys don't have to worry about loyalty to a client like defense attorneys do. So defense attorneys may be more prone to like be concerned about preserving the record for appeal or something like that, whereas plaintiff attorneys need to win here and now. And so that's just a, those are just several examples of how plaintiff attorneys uh, out-hustle defense attorneys. But there, there's even more, and it just goes on and on. Well, it's a culture. Yeah, and, and, and so what's been happening, and this is a very hot topic, um, and something I read in one of the articles, which no one's really talking about until now, is the uh, concept of third-party funding for litigation. This has become an investment <laughs> for people to have money, for hedge funds. And so now what's happening, uh, so back in the old day, like you said, you know, the, the plaintiff attorney's own money is on the line. They have to finance the litigation. Now... Um, especially on some of these big cases, they find an investor to to pay for everything. And I think that's why you're seeing some of these crazy, ridiculous demands at mediation. And then crazy, you know, Nick Rowley getting in front of a jury last year and asking for $145 million. Because if you have that funding behind you and, and there's really no consequence, well, go try the case. And if you lose, the, the plaintiff attorney is not not losing anything and if you win it's going to be a nuclear verdict um what are your thoughts about how this third party funding is now fueling litigation and then what the defense bar has is typically an insurance company that wants to save money well not a fair fight <laughs> I've, I've been involved in one of those cases um but I've, in order to tell this story i'm going to have to back up a little bit to a comment you made earlier about um, how harnessing science can really have an effect. In other words, yeah. my, my first thought was possibly, you know, the listener of this podcast is saying, well, who are these guys? I mean, what right do they have to make these opinions? What have they done? Yeah. Well, let me tell you something about what we've actually done. Um, and this is just one example. Um, we actually played an instrumental role in, in suppressing East Texas patent verdicts to the extent we were mentioned in an article, but we were mentioned by name in an article called Taming Texas. And those verdicts have gone from eight, nine, ten figures down to one or two million dollars and a lot of defense verdicts in the last 10 or 15 years, lar largely as a, as a result of 
these defendants being willing to harness science. But even more to the point, we worked for a heavy equipment manufacturer for 13 years. And over that period of time, the highest verdict was $4.2 million because they consistently used the scientific methods that were made available to them. But when the crash came in 2008, they discontinued it saying, you know, we just can't afford this. I tried to warn them against it, but uh, they, they were not receptive to my messages. Two months later, they got hit for $57 million in San Antonio wow. on just an injured, an injured, a back injury case, essentially. And so what happened then, I didn't hear from them for a couple of years, and I did get contacted by them on one more case. It was a trade secrets case, and the mock, mock trial showed they would get hit for a couple million dollars, but I told them at that time, there's something wrong with these witnesses. Um, we we have to train these guys extensively. Uh, they never they never followed up on that. They just went to trial. Now they were funded. The plaintiff in that case was funded by a third party investor, and they got out hustled at trial. And these defense attorneys, defense witnesses, collapsed. Basically, gave away the farm on the witness stand. Wow. Jury awarded seventy five million dollars. Oh. What what happened was the plaintiff team funded by a third party was just armed to the teeth. I mean, they were prepared to the hilt. And I really don't think that the defense team could have matched the level of preparation that the plaintiff team had. So when you have that third party funding, um, it it allows you to do everything that needs to be done. And then some, and that's what makes the difference. Well, if you, if you bring a knife to a a gunfight, you're, you're probably not going to win. And that's what it sounds like happened in that case. I, I still think it's, currently happening so let's kind of define the losing formula because when i read about these things and then rumors start to spread but you know we we know a lot of attorneys i think that the losing formula which what leads to this these nuclear verdicts um and i think it's the same formula every time for for my research is that you have this kind of lack of early preparation like the discovery process you get out maneuvered the witness testimony stinks you get outmaneuvered. All these witnesses, bad depositions. Bad depositions. They're all on I videotape. Call that, I call that handcuffed on a freight train to hell. Well, yeah. And then, 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 then phase two is you. Okay, so now you realize, okay, we have a big, big problem. And so then the plaintiff attorney doubles their demand, or hell, they they just take it off the table and say, you know, screw you, we're going to trial. And now everybody's panicking. Then an excess insurance. <laughs> Uh, layer kicks in, right? So now, the, usually the original trial team is now replaced by some big shots that haven't even worked on the case, and they're hired to come in and save. The, it's called parachuting in. I, and I have several clients that do this. Um, a new legal team will come in, parachute on the case, and they're expected to come to the plate and hit a home run, right? Um, as they walk into the courtroom with this new case, and the plaintiff attorneys, it's, I, mean, I mean, the plaintiff attorneys have been doing. You know, they've been on the same plan. They have, uh, they're going to stick with their plan. And then by the time you get to the courtroom, you're so far behind the eight ball. There's just, there's no way to catch up. That sounds about right. Um, yeah. It, I would add, however, that there often is some form of egregious corporate conduct, um, or some witness who's just trying who really is trying to hide the ball you know and oftentimes these witnesses 
are lying to to not only their their trial team but to the people that try to train them uh, or to the psychologists working with them. So sometimes there really is some kind of dark heart of darkness at the core of all this that jurors can sniff out. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, <laughs> if but if if you know that early on in your case, I think you I think you handle that file a little bit differently. If you That's figure that point. out, if you, you figure have that to out, six strategy that works that to to take care of that ahead of time, and it often seems like the entire trial team is in denial about it. No, I, I think I think you're right, I, and it's my opinion. Um, before we, I want to jump into the science here. I largely think the vast majority of these ridiculous verdicts are, are preventable if you do the right thing. And like with anything else in life, uh, if, if you follow the right system, it's most likely going to work out for you. And so, George, I'd like you to kind of walk us through kind of what you and I do for our clients. You've been doing it a lot longer than me. But talk about the success system and, and how to use the scientific method, particularly early on in cases, and, and what you've done for decades, what I've been doing to help our clients avoid getting behind the eight ball, avoiding these nuclear verdicts, and in fact, actually obtaining leverage against plaintiff's counsel. Well, what we're really looking for here is control. And control has two key components, really, one of which is quantitative and the other one is qualitative. The quantitative component entails prediction. You have to know ahead of time that there's a significant likelihood that you're facing a potential runaway or nuclear verdict. And that involves the aspect of forecasting and prediction. Now, there's a lot of controversy about whether mock trials can actually predict uh, litigation outcomes. But that whole controversy is permeated by the confounding factor of whether or not the people who are actually practitioners have the scientific training and expertise to design and implement research for prediction of human behavior. In other words, there are things that have to be done in psychological research and design in order to achieve predictive validity. And if those things are not done, your research will not will not be predictive. Let me jump in on that point because I'll <laughs> tell you, in fact, there's a trial going on right now in Las Vegas that we did a mock trial for our our client who's an insurance company. And, uh, and, and, and the plaintiff attorney is a reptile attorney. So I get the phone call and they said, hey, we, we're not feeling really good about this case. Um, and the, here's, here's what they said. They go, we've already done a mock trial, but we don't trust the results. And I went, well, what ha I go, well, who did you hire? They told me who they hired. I'm not going to mention their name. But they don't have PhD scientists on their team. I think their backgrounds are like political science and public relations. And they put on a very non-scientific kind of basic project. And guess what the results were, George? Three defense three defense verdicts. <laughs> okay. And they, didn't, every time. And, and they didn't even test the reptile theory in the mock trial. So then we came in and we helped the legal team put on the, and I think this is huge as far as prediction is you have to put on the right plaintiff case to accurately test the case and get valid and reliable results. So we helped them design the opening statement, the questioning for the witnesses, the closing argument to be more reptile theory based. Okay. And then we go in and we do our mock trial. 
guess what the results were? <laughs> 100 to $115 million in damages across three juries. And that's so, okay. So, so now listen, let me repeat that. The first set of mock trials, zero, 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 defense, defense, defense. When, once we once we reptiled ourselves essentially in the mock, because that's what's really going to happen in trial, a hundred to hundred and fifteen million dollars. But now the client knows. Okay, now unfortunately they called us a little too late in the game because I think if they knew the case was worth a hundred million dollars two years ago. Uh, so I do also I want you to ask you about the timing of such research. But I think. A corporation or an insurance company, and, and of course a, 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 a defense uh, firm, to have these answers, the earlier the better, allows you some maneuverability to make the right decisions. Because if you get, the, if I tell you, hey, you're going to get hit for a hundred million dollars, and your trials in thirty days, that's not a really good position to be in. That's that's part of it. The other part of it is that the people that run the trial teams and in-house corporate counsel especially need to be educated about the importance of scientific background and qualifications in jury research practitioners. We wrote an article about this in Risk and Insurance in 2008. Unfortunately, it was timed and the article came out right at the yeah. right at the moment of the uh the giant the great recession market crash. But um part of the issue here is that I've been running a these articles that talk about how the legal profession and science basically just don't like each other. Yeah. And if you don't believe that, go to Google the following. Seventh Circuit excoriates legal profession for fear of science. And you will see all these articles written by uh, various types of people who talk about how they believe that lawyers just hate science. And so they don't look for it in their uh, jury research practitioners. Um, and so there's a lot of skepticism toward whether or not a scientific approach is even worthwhile or meaningful. I had one attorney tell me once that he thought that the allegation that that mock trial research could predict verdicts was quote-unquote offensive. So I'll leave, leave that to the listener to, to to ascertain what's really going on there, but let me tell you how the story arose and how the idea, whole idea arose that mock trials could, in fact, be predictive. In 1993, we worked on the Exxon Valdez case, and it, a mock trial there had four juries awarding two, three, four, and $12 billion for an average of $5.2 billion. The actual award, of course, was $5 billion. But Exxon stock went up because Wall Street thought the number was going to be 10 to $12 billion. So wow. this latter range of 10 to $12 billion, we call the hunch, is how cases are settled to this day 99% of the time. So you can imagine how much money is actually just thrown away based on what people call intuition or hunches instead of relying on scientific methodology. But at that time, in 1993, we never came to the conclusion that the research could predict. We just thought that was too much to conclude at that point but yeah and ten, uh oh go ahead sure go ahead well 10 years later we were working on one of the heavy equipment manufacturers cases and had a mock trial with three juries of 25 37 and 112 million averaging 58 million dollars our client settled out and the actual trial ended up with a verdict of 58 million dollars it was exactly the same as the average of the three mock juries 
this is we affectionately refer to this in-house as perfect research but at this point we could no longer dismiss the notion that when the research is designed and implemented in a certain manner that it could actually predict at this point we really felt we had a moral obligation to start start showing these results to people and getting them to think seriously about using science to try to head off these runaway juries so again back to the point you have to know it's common before you can even start to prepare no, that's I, prediction. I totally agree. And uh, you know, you talked about different qualifications across consultants and consulting firms, and uh, you know, jury consulting now. Uh, you know, back in your day, there there wasn't too many people doing this, and now you have more. It's it's a growing. It's it's still in its infancy, but it's growing. But uh, what I've seen uh, are a lot of firms popping up that really lack that scientific background, yet they're selling mock trials and they're selling focus groups uh, and they're doing it a lot cheaper than us. And unfortunately, I think sometimes the defense bar or the insurance industry, they're looking at the dollar sign to make their choices. (laughs) You have to also keep in mind, there's no credentialing standards, no qualification standards. There's no barriers to entry at all in the jury consulting field. All you have to do is assert that you are one. And even the American Society of Trial Consultants had a vote on whether they jury research uh, consultants ought to have some sorts of some sort of credentials. It was voted down in the American trial American Society of Trial Consultants. I was at that meeting. I was at that meeting. And do you want to know and, why it was voted down? <laughs> because, because there were so many who didn't have qualifications <laughs> Thank you. credentials. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 a hundred people in this room, and ten of them have PhDs. <laughs> And probably 20 of them have master's degrees. The rest of them, George, I, I saw acting coaches. And, and by the way, I, and I, I, I'm not making this up. I sat next to these two ladies and I asked them where they were from. They say California. I go, well, what's your specialty in litigation consult? Oh, they go, we, well, we, we specialize in jury selection. I go, really? I go, well, what's your, like, what's your background? What's your education or qualifications? And they said, well, we, we're handwriting experts. <laughs> I said, "Excuse me." They go, "We're, we're handwriting experts." I, I'm not joking. This is a true story from 2003. And I go, "Your handwriting." I go, "How in the world do you assist with jury selection if you're a handwriting expert?" They go, "Oh, well, they give us the juror questionnaires. You know, the juror, the basic juror questionnaire gets filled out. We get copies of those ahead of time, and we can read. You know, we can analyze the handwriting and tell the." defense team whether they're going to be pro-plaintiff or, or pro-defense. Now, Man, I, I almost fell out of my started. I almost fell out of my chair. I mean, I almost burst out in laughter. I think I did burst out in laughter, and they're kind of looking at me funny. But that's the type... In other words, I think it's a very buyer-beware system out there for the clients. And I oh actually feel bad. I think I feel bad for the clients. They maybe don't understand the importance of qualifications and training in the scientific method. Science with quotes around it. Yeah, uh, You know, the, the funny thing here is that we talked about this fear of science. Science is merely society's preferred means for ascertaining the truth of a proposition. You know, why should anyone be afraid or resist this whole thing? And when you're talking about jury selection, you're talking about prediction of behavior. Now, if you go back just to your basic high school science classes and remember Newton... Isaac Newton under the apple tree, right? And the apple falls. So you have observation is the first step in the scientific method. Then hypothesis. Then theory. Then you have 
the prediction from your theory, and then you test that prediction. So prediction is actually the highest level of scientific achievement. Now, when you're doing jury selection, that is nothing other than prediction, because you are trying to say, is this jury a good jury or a bad jury? Meaning, what is he going to do later when he gets into the verdict room and starts deliberating? You're trying to predict his behavior. So you have all these people operating at the highest level of scientific achievement, namely prediction, and not a single one of them has any kind of background in science at all. It's yeah, really it's astounding. And I routinely, over and over again, get juror questionnaires given to me by trial teams, and it's just full of all this stuff, like, you know, what does your bumper sticker say, or what, what radio shows do you listen to? And someone has decided that those things are going to predict juror behavior. Well, on what basis do you have that information? How do you know this will be predicted? No one's ever tested these things. They've never been su subjected to scientific analysis. And it's and, and these are the way. This is how ju jurors get picked. It's really well. I'm going to I'm going I'm going to tell you a story about a nuclear verdict. I actually have it on a computer screen right now. Um, uh, there's a guy named Pat Salvi. He's a very successful uh, plaintiff attorney in uh, Cook County, Chicago. And uh, I've been up against him several times. Been very successful. Um, but uh, last year, he won the largest verdict ever. Um, I think it's in the state of Illinois and against the city of Chicago when a woman was paralyzed at O'Hare Airport when a bus shelter collapsed on her. Okay, and he got ready for this: one hundred and forty-eight million dollars. And a lot of people said, "Well, pff, it's Cook County. What do you expect?" But here's what I want to tell you, because I know people that worked on this case. Guess how many times Pat Salvi mocked tried this case before trial? Take a guess. Maybe four? Nine. Nine times. Nine times, because he wanted to be sure he was going to win. And he also wanted to be sure is it's the amount of money I'm asking for going to offend this jury. If I ask for $200 million, is that too much? Or is, is 100 not enough? He mock tried it nine times. George, guess how many mock trials the city of Chicago did prior to trial? Across all their other cases? No, for this case, for this particular case. Guess how many mock trials they did? Zero. Zero or one. None. Yeah. None. Yeah. They did not do one. Do you want to know why? They didn't want to spend the money. Sure. They didn't want to spend the money. It always goes. And so it's $148 million. So again, I think there's the, it's the same thing. It's the being out prepared, being out maneuvered is going to lead to, to really bad things. But let's go back to the scientific method, George, because you know, the, the one slide that we show in our CLE presentations which I want to talk about is that three-legged stool. The three-legged stool of it's a validity, really. Can you talk about like what is validity? Because a lot of non-scientists don't understand that sure, sure. and how important it is to getting correct results. Because here's the thing. Any, any jury consulting firm can get you results. They can get you answers. But are they the right answers? And I think that's where the rubber meets the road. Sure. The three-legged stool to which you refer has this three legs on which it rests. And the first one is the recruit. Are you getting jurors who match the trial venue? And it's very important to make sure that the people who are watching the case that you're about to present match the people who are going to actually see the trial. Okay, and the second leg of the stool is attorney content. Okay, in other words, what is the message? What are the 
uh, evidentiary stimuli? What are the videotape excerpts, the, the uh, witness testimony, uh, the, the good and the bad paper, um, all and the arguments and themes? Will they reflect uh, accurately or faithfully that which the real jury will, in fact, hear? And then the third leg of the stool is methodology, which is how the actual research is designed, implemented, how the data is analyzed, okay? So there's, those are the three pillars of, of validity. And I forgot to mention, as you requested, what is the definition of validity? Validity is the extent to which your research results accurately reflect the real world. In other words, to what extent are you getting results that tell you what, in fact, is actually going to happen? We call that predictive validity. There so when you get yeah. so when you get three defense verdicts, <laughs> that's typically a bad sign. In fact, I would argue if you don't lose your mock trial, there's probably something wrong in your yeah. validity. Yeah. Um, so yeah. But but the real problem, of course, is that the mock trials tend to be won by the party that pays for them because they're creating biased. Um, you know, biased messages instead of the message that the jury is really going to hear. One right. of my very first mock trials uh, in 1983, it was down in Georgia, and it was a pharmaceutical case. We got defense verdicts, and the jury came back at $6 million, and our client is pissed off. It turned out that the pharmaceutical company was falsifying data to the FDA, but they never even put that in the mock. <laughs> of course you're of course you're going to get defense verdicts when you're filtering the data that the jury hears according to what you'd like for them to hear and that's why we have to be looking over their shoulders breathing down their necks about what is going to go into this mock trial what are you going to show these jurors because you know you can make a trial come out almost any way you want if yeah. you edit the videotapes a certain way right and then again we get back to this this notion that people go well you say mock trials can predict you know who are you you know mock trials can't predict everybody knows that look if you get the same kind of people and give them the same information you're going to get the same thing back you know whether yeah. you compare a real trial to a mock trial jurors don't use that much information in coming to a verdict they only use five or six data points to come to a decision about verdict and damages and you trying to tell me you can't you can't cover that in a two day project? No, that's a very Maybe. very good very good point. Uh, we have to wrap up here in the next few minutes, but there's two more uh, topics I want to cover with you, George. Uh, okay. One is assuming that you're using the scientific method and doing these mock trials the right way. Um, when's the ideal timing timing of a mock trial? Because I, I tell you what, I think seven out of ten that I do now are before mediation. They don't want to. Uh, a client doesn't want to know. I'm getting hit for $50 million the year of that the trial, the trial date. The, the, they want that before they start, you know, going into settlement negotiations. Well, ideally, it would be best if you could do it right before discovery cutoff, because then if you learn something, you still have a chance to get another witness or or make some changes before you're before you're handcuffed at that point with the discovery cutoff. Now. A lot of trial teams are just not going to do that, but you certainly don't want to wait till the last two or three weeks before trial. I mean, that's just too late. It takes that long to, you know, to really chew up and analyze 
the data and, and figure out what it all means. And by that time, people are just too busy preparing for the actual trial. And there's no there's no flexibility to make adjustments when you're that late in the game. Right, right. Um, and then the final topic here, because this and, and this is this is one that really um, gets me going and gets me, uh, let's just say, a little ticked off. <laughs> um, so I had a client, uh, a trucking client. Uh, where I was doing, I was, I was training their uh, corporate representative and uh, training for deposition. And he goes, uh, you know, we're talking about these nuclear verdicts. He's like, well, we have a plan internally to deal with these, and we're also going to save money at the same time. I go, well, what's your plan? He goes, well, we're going to sign up for these online mock trials. We're going to sign up for these online mock trials. They're cheap. Yeah, it's a mock trial, and we're going to do these in our cases to determine which cases are the winners and which cases are the losers. Now, again, kind of like the handwriting expert, I burst out in laughter, looking at him like, are, are you out of your mind? And again, you and I have not prepared for this podcast as far as every Q&A I've given you, George, and but you and I have talked about this topic before. What are the risks and dangers? Because I know what they are, but I want to hear from you. The risks and dangers of all... I can give this to you in, a, I think, a very succinct kind of nutshell. Um, I imagine people are wondering, well, what is it that these guys do that makes their mock trials more predictive than the average mock trials? And by the way, we're not saying, you know, every single one is predicted perfectly. There are things that go bump in the night. There are uh, witnesses that are uncontrollable. Bad judges. Bad judges. There are, you know, luck of the draw with the venere when the jury comes in. I just had like a horrible jury selection the other day where a guy was, well, I won't even go into those details. But the point here is that when, when you are predicting, you have to make your research as much like the real thing as you can. You know, that is why we use a bailiff. That's why we use a judge. That's why we use a courtroom. You treat yours like yours, they act like yours. And there are a whole host of other things to make it as much like the criterion, in other words, a real trial, as you can possibly make it. Online online research is as far away from being like an actual trial as it gets in this industry, which means it is the most egregious violation of this rule that your, that your um, research should be like the criterion, which is the real thing. Uh, in order to achieve predictive validity. So almost everything is violated there. You, you don't have people acting like jurors. You don't have them having the information that jurors have. Well, it's the, it's the human um, factor. So why it's should the human you expect factor, the results to be like a real jury? You know. Yeah, it's really the human factor is what's taken out of it. And, I, and, for, and for example, um, I'll get on my, my football team's uh, 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 chat room or whatever, and these fans – I call it keyboard bravery. Anytime you're online, I look at how people tweet and things that they post, uh, particularly politically, look how they do it, right? Um, people behave very differently online than they would in a room with 11 other people. And I, I, I mean, online, you hear, I mean, you just read vicious comments going back and forth, stuff that people would never say with someone else sitting next to them. I don't, I, I, in fact, I don't think there's any validity in, in, in that online methodology, but boy, it's cheap. Yeah, social psychologists call that de-individuation, which is being removed from the personal consequences of your communication, right? Or you could call it the writing on the bathroom wall effect. Yeah. 
No, you're absolutely right. Well, listen, I think, George, I want to thank you so much for being part of the, uh, the podcast today. If you want to reach out to George, uh, again, uh, courtroomsciences.com, uh, gspeckart at courtroomsciences.com. Uh, and, George, we're going to have you back soon because I think we can dive into this topic uh, a lot deeper and get into the weeds. But uh, thank you for participating, and we'll see you next time. My pleasure. Take care. All right. Well, that's the end of episode two. I thought that was fantastic. Uh, and uh, Dr. Speckart really knows what he's doing. And if you have any other questions, again, uh, Bill Kanaski, uh, courtroomsciences.com. We're going to do, we're developing live uh, CLEs and some webinars on these topics as well. But I really thought that going the podcast route and having a more discussion uh based platform for this was going to be the, uh, a really good start uh, to this. So uh, we do plan on episode three of the nuclear verdict, which I think we're going to recruit a couple of defense attorneys to talk uh, about their perspective from the defense uh, uh, perspective and the things that they go through and, and, and some of the feelings they have about uh, nuclear verdicts. But for now, again, thank you very much and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Litigation Psychology Podcast, presented by CSI. For more information, visit courtroomsciences.com.